This class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com Major funding for this Tanya class is provided by the Mettel Corporation. Additional funding is provided by Tanya students like you. Lessons in Tanya The Tanya of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi Taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg Now he's going to explain, to make known the greatness, the strength of Torah. The tremendous strength that studying Torah, and especially studying the oral Torah, gives us tremendous strength in our spiritual, spiritual growth, in our spiritual connection with Hashem. It's not an obvious, obvious connection. Studying legalese and studying Talmud and busting your head and understanding the logic, the underlying logic of the Talmud, you don't see the connection how, by studying that, that that nurtures and that strengthens my spiritual life, my spiritual relationship with Hashem. I mean, that's brilliance. That's understanding the legal, the legal mind, understanding that's logic, that's intellect. What does that have to do with my spiritual life, my inner spiritual life, my inner relationship with Hashem? So in this, chap- in this letter, the Alter Rebbe says, let me explain to you the strength, the strength of the Torah and how it helps you, it gives you strength to nourish and to nurture your spiritual life, your inner spiritual life and your inner relationship with Hashem. That's what he's going to explain. Now. And make known to mankind the might of the oral Torah and its power which is great. The might, Devura, of Torah relates specifically to the oral law. For with regard to the source of the Torah, in the supernal Seferit, the written Torah derives from the Seferit, of Chachma, which is aligned with the right side of the universe. The attribute of Hesed, kindness, and benevolence, the oral Torah derives from the Seferit of Bina, which is aligned with the left side of the universe. The attribute of Gavur, stern judgment and severity, this relationship between Bina and Gevura is alluded to in the verse, I am Bina, Gevura is mine. So the written Torah is more chachmat, more the potential. Things are not yet formed, things are not yet delineated, the boundaries are not set. It's just in potential, it's vague. Things are vague and fuzzy. And that's why chachma is more of a tendency towards kindness. Versus Bina is clarity. Bina is very defined, very precise. Where everything is, has its boundaries, everything has its limits. And the more clearly delineated it is, the more clearly you understand it. This is this, to be precise. Chachmah's general vague assumptions, vague a sense of the matter, of the whole... But it's not yet so clear. Bina is very precise. The engineer, very precise. 
define for me what this means, what this principle means, define to me what this word means. You have to be a very precise definition. This word means this and not this. You have to be very precise and like chisel away and get to the precise meaning. So this already comes Gevura. This Gevura is, it has, everything has its limitations and its boundaries. Versus Chacham is more the general sense, the general idea. So the written Torah is more general, vague. That's Chacham. Bina, the oral Torah, which defines the, the written Torah, that's, that's Gevura. Everything is very clear, everything is very precise, everything has its boundaries, everything has its rules. Very delineated. So that's Gevura, that's strength. But Gevura is also strength, and that comes strength. When everything is very clear, crystal clear, that gives that comes that's gavura also from, from strength. The strength of Torah. Just like the strength of the intellect. The strength of the intellect you see when things are very clearly defined. It's only then that you grasp it. Only then that you have a handle on it. Only then that the intellect is powerful. You can you can you can play with it, not you know, you own it and you can describe it this way and describe it another way and you can extrapolate from it and you can compare it and you can derive things from it and you can do things with it when you just have a vague concept you don't really own it you, you, you're, you're holding it, it's very tenuous there's no strength there's no, so the mind it's very creative very creative mind, very exciting mind it's like the aha moment uh, exactly it's exactly. fleeting it's fleeting, but it's very exciting because yeah. you can't compare it to that originality and their creativity, like the creative genius. The creative genius, his genius is his creativity. That aha moment, that uh, eureka. But, but his hold on it is very, neb- is very vague and fuzzy. The bina is the engineer, the logical mind. Maybe he doesn't have a single creative bone in his body. But give him a concept and he'll delineate it and he'll spell it out and he'll build a structure but that's when you see strength. That's when you see, oh, now I see an edifice, I see a structure, I see something real. Something I can grasp, something I can build with, something I can do with. I can do something with it. Vague concepts, many vague concepts never get realized. Because it's too vague and it's too fuzzy and, and the person doesn't have the ability to carry it out, or to bring it, to implement it, because it's too abstract. It's too nebulous. How many brilliant minds came up with brilliant concepts and died poor. And there was the person who understood the brilliance in the concept went and developed it and they, and they, reaped, and they reaped all the, all the gain. So the strength comes from Bina. It's like the husband is the Chachma and the woman is the Bina, the Gevura. Bina Yaseira Nitna Bisha. So the husband comes home, he comes home with the wheat. Okay? <laughs> what are you going to do with the wheat? Very nice. It's only when the woman takes that wheat she grinds it and she, she needs it and she uh, sifts it and she needs it and she bakes it. Now you have something you can do with it. Now you have something that will nourish you and nurture you. See, the husband comes with all the raw potential, but the seed. But it's only the woman who actually develops it into something, something real. So that's where the strength. That's why Gvura is not just lim- by limiting and defining and delineating it. That's where you see the strength. It's like the difference between a drop of water, a wellspring, there's drops, versus a roaring river. What's the source of the roaring river? It's the wellsprings that feed the river. But in the river, 
suddenly it becomes a roaring, mighty, powerful river. The wellspring is the source, but it's, it's tiny drops. The difference is the, the, the river alone could dry out. The wellspring is always fresh, is always new, it never dries out. So that, that's the Chachma and the Bina, the creativity, and then comes the Bina that takes that creative seed and develops it into something very powerful until it becomes a force. So one Pasuk in the Torah becomes a mighty river, a whole tractate, over a hundred pages, great detail explaining and fleshing it out, and that's when it becomes a roaring river. Now you see its strength, you see its might. So that's Gvurososhal Torah, the strength of the Torah, which specifically refers to the oral Torah, which comes from Bina, which um, corresponds to the oral Torah. Okay. Well, on the strength of the oral law, gives the soul of a Jew. King Solomon, peace be to him, explains she girds her loins with strength. Oiz, we said strength refers to Torah. We just explained at great length that Oiz, strength, refers to Torah, and specifically the oral Torah. So King Solomon, at the end of Proverbs, which we say in the Eishas Chayil, that we say every Friday night, King Solomon says, King Solomon's woman of valor obviously is referring to, it's a metaphor for the Jewish people. The Jewish people are God's bride. So King Solomon is saying that the bride, the Jewish people, she girdles herself, with strength, her thighs. And the Rebbe is going to explain what that means in the... What that means is a parable. What that means within the Jew, within the Jewish people, now a spiritual relationship with Hashem. What that means. Woman of Baal allowed by King Solomon at the opening of the relevant chapter is an oracle allusion to Knesset Yisrael, the congregation of Israel, which comprises all Jewish souls. In the verse quoted, she girds her loins with strength. Strength refers to the Torah as in the teaching, there is no strength other than the Torah. Thus, the Torah strengthens the loins of the soul, just as a warrior girds his loins to gather maximal strength. But what is meant by girding the loins of the soul? The loins are the underframe that supports the whole body, including the head that is positioned over them. The loins, the thighs, support, support, support the whole body. And support the arms, and support the head. But after a while, the loins grow tired as well. A person has to gird his loins. You have to, you have to girdle yourself. When you girdle yourself, like before you take a long walk, a long hike, you girdle yourself. It gives you strength. It gives added strength to the loins to be able to carry on, to continue to carry on, to carry the arms, the body, the arms, and the head. So you need additional strength. So now he's going to explain what are, what is... What are the loins? What does that mean? How does that correspond spiritually? What are the arms? What is the head? And what is the girdle that strengthens the loins? What does this all mean? It's all a metaphor. What does it mean on a personal, on a spiritual level in our relationship to Hashem? It is they that lead and bring the body to the desired destination. Even though the loins are lower than the, the heart, the arms, and the head, but they have an, an advantage because they carry the rest of the body. When the brain wants to go, you need the healthy loins. 
So there is an advantage, a superiority to the loins over, over the head. And just as it is with the corporeality of the body, so it is with the spirituality of the divine soul. Just as the loins support the corporeal head, body and head, so do the soul's loins support and lead the body and head of the soul to its desired spiritual destination. The soul's loins are the true belief in the one God, the blessed I itself. The loins represent the faith. The faith. Now the faith is below the mind. We have faith in something we don't understand. We don't fully comprehend. Something that you fully comprehend, you don't need faith. People make a mistake. People think that belief in God, that's faith. To believe that there's a creator, that there's an intelligent design, that that's religion, that's faith. You don't need faith for that. It's logical. It's sensible. Anyone who's open-minded, anyone whose heart and mind are not clogged, or anyone who's not delusional, or anyone who doesn't want to delude himself just to justify a certain lifestyle, anyone who's truly thinking rationally and is truly open to truth and not corrupted by your own indulgences and by your own rationalization and justification to live a corrupt and decadent lifestyle, anyone who's truly honest, an honest human being who's truly open to truth, how could you not see that there's a God, a creator? You, you, lo- you know it from your own self. Have you ever seen your soul? Never. Have you spoken to your soul? Never. Have you ever touched your soul? Never. But you're more certain of your soul than anything in the world you can see, a taste, a touch, a smell. We're here. What's the body? The body is a corpse. So when, when I'm alive, my hand moves. My hand is moving. It's my soul that's moving. It's self-evident. It's obvious. I can sense it. I can feel it. That's what you sense when you wake up in the morning. You sense yourself. Yourself is not your physical, your body. It's that soul. And you're more certain of that than anything else in the world that you can see. So this whole scientific approach to life, anything that I can't see doesn't exist. It's childish. It's immature. It's ridiculous. That's so unscientific. Because the most scientific fact is learning from your own personal experience. Just like our own personal body and soul. We're more certain of our soul than anything we can see or taste or take to the lab even though we can't take our soul to the laboratory, but we're more sure of our soul. So we can extrapolate from the microcosm, we can extrapolate the same is true with the macrocosm. You see this vast universe, this huge world, which is subdivided into many different categories. There's inorganic, there's organic life, there's animal life, there's human life, and then there's higher levels, higher levels of consciousness. But there's a soul. This is just a body. And just like when I look at you, what am I seeing? I'm not looking, all I see is the body. My eyes can only see your body. But when I'm looking at you, what am I looking at? I'm looking at you. You is not the body. You is your personality, your character. The body is see-through. The body is just a container that contains the soul. There's nothing else but the soul. The body alone is a corpse. It's nothing. The body doesn't move. And here this body is alive. It's the soul that's alive. It's the body, every 100 trillion cells that are alive. It's the soul. The moment the soul leaves, you're just a piece of clay. So when I'm looking at you, I'm not seeing, yes, all I see physically is the physical. But what am I seeing? What am I looking at? I'm looking at you, your personality, your soul. So when a a person looks at this world, the religious person, the mystic, 
or the sensible person who's honest and open, who's not corrupted and decadent, who's truly objective and honest and senses is looking for truth, a true seeker of truth. When I look at the world, how can you not see Hashem? The soul of the world. The mover and shaker. You don't lift a pinky unless it was decreed in heaven. Just like the body doesn't lift a pinky, it's not your body that's moving, it's your soul that's moving. So nothing happens in this world. All the scientific law and everything that happens in this universe is merely an expression of the soul. It's like a, 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 a tear. You'll take the scientists will take the tear to the laboratory and dissect it and analyze it, but it misses the whole point. Because what's the tear? The tear is just a, a symptom of sadness, of a person crying. That you can't capture in the laboratory. So with anything you see in this world is just a physical symptom of what's really going on spiritually. And it's that energy and it's that soul of the world that moves everything. And that, So that, you don't need faith for that. That's logical. If you open your mind, if you're truly open-minded, if you have innate intelligence, not pseudo-intellectual, how could you not sense and see that this world is pulsating, this world is alive, this world is unified, just like within the body? When you walk down the streets, you don't sense yourself, your collection, a bag, of bones and blood and, and, and veins and collection of organs. <laughs> you sense yourself as one single, whole, indivisible, undivisible self. So too, when you look at this world, it appears to be fragmented, but the truth is it's all one. It's one soul. It's all one. As the scientists, the true scientists, at the cutting edge of science, as they go deeper into the, into the physics of reality, modern physicists, ultimately they come to the one. Ultimately everything is one. You don't need faith for that. All roads today lead to Jerusalem. In the scientific lab, the modern physicist is coming to the same conclusion that we have been studying about for thousands of years. That ultimately everything is one. And you touch an atom at one end of the world and it will affect the other half of the atom at the other end of the world. Because they're inseparable. They're one. That's the true nature of reality. It's just a shame that in the, in the educational system, they're stuck in a time warp. They're stuck in a 19th century outdated whole fr- um, frame of reference, very materialistic frame of reference that has been completely discredited. We're so beyond that today. So you don't need faith to believe in Hashem, to know that there's a creator, to know that there's a soul, to know that there's, God moves and is the mover and shaker of the world and God is in charge and control of the world. Nothing happens in this world without Hashem. That's all, all religious people and all mystics and anyone who's sensible and honest and open and objective. Just like you feel you know your soul, you know that the world also has a soul. And that's Hashem. That's logical. It's common sense. Here we're talking about faith. Faith. In the infinite, faith in something that's totally beyond our grasp, totally beyond our comprehension. The soul, we can relate to. The soul animates us. The soul, we haven't seen the soul, but the soul we can relate to. To relate to God as the creator of heaven and earth and the one who runs heaven and earth and is in charge of heaven and earth. For that, you don't need faith. That's common sense. But to have faith that God is infinite, as he says here, the true belief in the one God, the blessed Ein Saf, that God is truly infinite, 
This is beyond our comprehension. To believe that God is beyond our whole frame of reference and that's not something we could relate to. Because we are finite. We can't relate to something in we don't know what it means. We don't know what it looks like. We have, we have no experience in infinite. We're finite. So to believe that God is something else entirely, that God is so transcendent, God is so beyond the whole universe, and that our whole reality is nothing compared to God, completely insignificant. This is faith. This is ultimate faith. And it's not something we can grasp with our mind, that's what he, he says, that this is something, that this is, corresponds to the loins. It's below the heart, it's below the mind. Because we don't understand it. But we have that faith. We believe. We are believers, the children of believers. We have that instinct, we have that faith. We just know that God is infinite. And God is totally beyond anything we can comprehend, or anything we can describe. And therefore, since God is infinite, and be totally transcendent, therefore God is right here. Right in front of me, within me, all around me, and right before me. God is so real and so actual, and permeates every aspect of existence, every aspect of time and space and soul, and God is everywhere. There's no space empty of God. Precisely because God is so transcendent that there's nothing that conceals God. There's absolutely no concealment. There's no screening. There's no concealment. There's no hiding. God is right here, immediate, actual. I don't see it, because I'm wearing blinders. But the truth is, the reality is, and that's what faith is. I don't see it, but my faith tells me that God is real, and God is here, and it's immediate, and it's real. And every word of God, and every word of the Torah, and every word and every letter in the Torah is real, and actual, and infinite, and is relevant to my life, and it's meaningful, and it's purposeful. This is not ancient myths or mythology, God forbid. This is a living Torah, and it's a living God. And every word and letter in the code of Jewish law, and every word and letter in the Torah, is real and actual and immediate. This is faith. This we can grasp with our faith. We can't grasp it with our minds. We can't grasp it with our heart, truly. But this is faith. This is the faith, the pure faith that we all have, that we're all born with. So that's what he calls the loins. It's not the mind, it's not the heart, it's the loins. But he's saying the loins, not only the loins stand alone, but the loins carry the rest of the body. The loins carry the mind, and it carries the arms as well, and the body as well. And that's what he's going to explain. Who permeates all worlds with a vitality which indwelling permanent vitality which is contracted and tailored to the capacity of each individual creature? And who encompasses all worlds with a vitality that is transcended and motif, which cannot therefore clothe itself within created beings in an indwelling manner? These two levels you don't really need faith for. First level is what we described earlier. God permeates the world, God is the life of the world, God is the soul of the world, God is the life of the party, God is, just like the soul, is the soul of the body. So God is the soul of the whole world. That you don't need any faith for. But even the next level that he said, that God transcends the world, that you don't either need faith for. That's something that we could sense. And again, from our own personal experience, 
we all know that we have a level within us what we call the subconscious. We have a level within us that we're not even aware of. We're not even aware that it exists. It exists. We only have an, a hint for it. During the Eureka moment, suddenly we get an insight pops into our mind. Where did this insight pop in from? We have no idea. It just seems out of nowhere. It didn't come out of nowhere. It didn't come out of thin air. It comes from our subconscious, which tells us that we have a whole reality within us that we're completely clueless. Our whole conscious self is like the tip of the iceberg. The rest of the iceberg is submerged. We don't even know it exists. But that's where the action really is. The action is not on the conscious level. Our whole world, which begins with creativity and a whole tumult of consciousness and creativity and, and we go down, all of that is just the tip of the iceberg. Where does that all originate from? That's like a communique from our subconscious, which is completely hidden to us. But that's where the action is. That's where our life is. And that's how the body operates. We are 100 trillion cells. And they all work miraculously. They all work in harmony. In one split second. A hundred trillion cells working together. There is no computer on earth that could even come close to such intricacy, to such complexity, and all happening simultaneously. Our conscious self is very linear. One, two, three, four. But what takes us, uh, may, may take us 120 years on the transcendent level, subconscious level, happens in one split second. Thousands of things that the human mind couldn't possibly process. It would just overwhelm us and freeze us. And yet, like a raging ocean in the subconscious mind, it just happens in one second. The magnitude is so vast. The human body is so complex. The subconscious is so beyond our comprehension, our conscious comprehension. That it's as if it doesn't exist. We don't sense it. The food that we ate today, we have no clue how it's digested. You know how infinitely complex the process of digesting what happens when you eat? Even the acts that we take for granted. There was a professor who decided once to learn to study every muscle in the leg, to understand, thoroughly understand the process of walking, talking about loins and legs, the process of walking. His study led him to the realization that there are thousands of interactions that happen that enable the simple act of walking all the muscles and everything has to work. He became so overwhelmed. He became paralyzed. (laughs) He was terrified. He couldn't walk. It was too much. His mind couldn't process it. And he was terrified to walk because he realized what has to happen in order for the simple step of walking. We speak and we take it for granted. You know, if God forbid someone loses his speech and needs speech therapy or someone doesn't have the capacity, you know how difficult it is to teach someone how to speak? You think to learn the violin is difficult? That's child's play in comparison to teaching someone the simple act of speaking, which we all take for granted. We don't even give it a a thought. That's how infinitely complex it is. Everything that we do, and yet it happens on automatic pilot, unselfconsciously. So the body has a life of its own. The whole conscious mind is maybe 1% of who we are. 99% happens... Blissfully, we're blissfully ignorant. It just happens unselfconsciously. All these, we each one of us has like thousands of pharmaceutical companies, the most exquisite, uh, developing, producing the most exquisite drugs for the body, and they all work harmoniously and simultaneously without any negative side effects. 
not like the pharmaceutical industry. And all of this happens smoothly. This, this, is, this blows the mind. But we, ha- we know enough to realize that there is this reality. This subconscious, this whole different dimension of reality that exists within us. That's really the source of our whole conscious being. And from our own personal experience, we can extrapolate that the same is true in the microcosm. At the macrocosm. What's true at the microcosm is true at the macrocosm. That there's a level, what we call save of Kalalman, with God's subconscious. What we call the level of Keter, God's crown, the subconscious. It's beyond the Svirot, beyond the Seder Hirstauschlus, which is the linear, logical, cause and effect, step by step level of reality, which we are familiar with, in which we operate. But there's a level that's infinitely time beyond that. It's our whole frame of reference, our whole arena which we play and operate in is so limited. It's so nothing, insignificant. There's so many circles beyond it which we, we can't even access and we barely even know where it exists. It has a life of its own and that's the source of everything, everything that happens on the conscious level. So that's the level of Sevakam. But even that, you don't need faith for it. You need to be a mystic or someone who has a very deep and profound sense, who can access the subconscious, learn to become aware of the subconscious, learn to realize that if there's a conscious, where's this consciousness coming from? There has to be a source, there has to be a root, there has to be where it's coming. It doesn't just come out of nowhere. This Eureka doesn't come out of nowhere. Suddenly it pops into my head. What do you mean it pops into your head? Where did it come from? You plucked it out of thin air. On Third Avenue, I mean, where, where, did, it, where, where did you get it from? It comes from deep within you, from a place and a source that you're completely ignorant of and completely unaware of. When you're struggling on an issue, your subconscious is struggling, but you're not totally unaware of it. And then suddenly pops into your mind a communique, an I am from your subconscious to your conscious. But at least you know that there is a subconscious. It's beyond us. It's beyond our common experience, but at least we're aware that it exists. For that, you don't need faith. From my conscious, I can extrapolate that there is a subconscious. From a Malik Kalalman, where God fills all the worlds, I can extrapolate that there is a save of Kalalman. There is a transcendent level of Godliness, which is the source of the conscious level of Godliness. The Svirot. But then, there is a third level. And the third level... There being no place or level of existence void of sin. See, here is a third level. This is the level of the essence of Hashem. This is what faith really is. This is where you need faith. To believe that the God, it's as if the whole universe doesn't exist. It's so insignificant. It's not like a body to the soul. A body is significant to the soul. It has some relationship to the soul. The body is a container to the soul. Therefore the body affects the soul, just like the soul affects the body. But God is not like a soul to the body. The world is not like a body to God. God is a soul. The world is completely insignificant. It's as if it doesn't even exist. That's how insignificant it is to God. God is creating the world. And He's sustaining the world. And He's animating the world. And he's the soul of the world. He's the life of the world. And He transcends the world. But in essence, from God's point of view, it's as if He's all alone. As if nothing happened. As if nothing was ever created. As if it's, it's completely insignificant. This is pure faith. To believe in the essence of God, that the ultimate reality, in the absolute reality, is so beyond us. It's even beyond the beyond. God is even beyond being infinite. 
not only God transcends the finite and the limited, God even transcends the infinite. Because infinite is in relation to finite. God is so beyond, you can't call him infinite and you can't call him finite. And the minute you open your mouth, you're already way off. You're already distorted as reality. There's no way to begin to describe. It's a reality that we can't even begin to say anything about. It's so beyond us. So to say that God, what does God do and what is God all about? God is a creator of worlds. Really? That's what God does? He creates a world? He can't even find that ability within him. It's so insignificant to God. The ability to create means absolutely nothing to God. It means nothing. So that's not what God does. You know what a God does? God is busy creating worlds. Only a God can create a world. So that's what God is all about. He cre- he creates a creator. Well, God is so infinite, He transcends the world. There's no relationship. There's nothing. All there is is God. God is beyond our whole comprehension. It's a reality that we can't begin to describe. And that's reality. And it's that God that we have a relationship with. It's that God that's sitting right in front of me, that's standing right in front of me and looking into my heart. And it's that God that gave me a Torah and gave me mitzvot. And it's that God that I'm married to. That's faith. That's not something you can grasp. That's something you can understand. Not with your intellect. Not through mysticism. Not through religion. Not through art. Not through music. The only way you connect with God is that pure faith. This is that Jewish faith. This is the Jew within us. This is what makes us Jewish. And this is the faith that he calls the loins. Because it's not the mind, it's not the heart, because we don't understand it. It's that pure faith. That the whole world is nothing to God, and therefore there's no space empty of God. That literally God is right here. There's no screening, there's no hiding, there's no symptom. And this goes back to the great discussion that Alter Rebbe had in the second part of the Tanya, in chapter 7, which you can listen to, thank God, on lessons in Tanya.com. The argument between the Baal Shem Tov and the Vilna Goin, whether symptom is literal or not. The Baal Shem Tov's position, and this is the foundation of Hasidism, that symptom is not literal. God, there's no screening and there's no hiding. God is present. Not only the essence of God is present, even His infinite protection, His protection, His light is also, is also present. There's absolutely no hiding and no screening. There's no diminishing. And therefore, God's essence is, there's no space empty of God Himself. Not only God watches over all the worlds, and His divine providence is over all the worlds, but God Himself, literally, there isn't a single point in time and space in this world, here and now, actual, immediate, us, where God is not here and present. This is pure faith. It's not something we can truly grasp with our mind, how that's possible, and what that means. But we're certain of it, with pure faith. And that's why even the unlettered, even the uneducated, know it with every fiber of their being and every bone in their body. That's why a Jew is constantly, God is constantly on a Jew's lips. Baruch Hashem. You ask a Jew how he's doing, how is your earning a living, how is, how's your parnasa, he says, Baruch Hashem, not so good, but Baruch Hashem. <laughs> everything is Baruch Hashem. Thank God, thank God for everything. I'm not talking theology, I'm not talking religion. I didn't ask you how your prayers are going. I didn't ask you how your studies are going. I'm asking you, how is your business? How's your health? How's your home doing? 
How's your wife, your children, your family? Baruch Hashem. Thank God. You write a letter. You open the letter. Baruch Hashem. With Hashem's name. With God's help. It's constantly in our lip. Because we know instinctively. We know in our gut. We know with every fiber of our being. These are the loins. This is the pure faith. God is everything. There's nothing else but God. You talk business, it's God. You talk health, it's God. You talk relationship, it's God. Family, it's God. Whatever you want to talk about, there's nothing else. God is. Period. End of story. Beginning of story, middle of story, end of story. This is it. This is what it's all about. There's nothing else. It's not icing on the cake. It's not religion. Mysticism. It's not compartmentalized. This is all there is. There is nothing else. Everything, every point of my life, Baruch Hashem. This is that faith. These are the loins that he describes. Continue. And below to no limit, for there is no limit to his ability to descend to the very lowest levels of creation and clothe himself within the world, even to the point that the world conceals the godliness that is within it. And likewise, in all four directions, east, west, north, south, truly in a state of infinitude, all of the above refers to the dimension of space. The same applies to the dimensions of year and soul, as is known. Creation embraces the three dimensions known as world, year, and soul, as explained in the Sefer Yetzirah. World alludes to space. Year refers to time, and soul denotes life. Just as God is one and infinite within the realm of space, so too he is one and infinite within the realms of time and life. But now he's going to explain how the loins, this faith, this pure faith, holds up the entire body, the arms and the head. Yes. You know, it says here, for there is no limit to his ability to descend to the very lowest levels of creation. Right. What does that mean? That God has found, you read the paragraph before that, He's above to no end. And just like He transcends, He's above to no end, so also He's below to no end. God is everywhere. So, so on one hand, above, above means even beyond. God is, transcends any level. God transcends that level. Because God is really beyond anything. Beyond everything and anything. And any level you can conceive of. And at the very same reason, God is everywhere and found in everything, even in the seemingly the lowest, even seemingly the coarse and the material and the crass. That was one of the reasons for those who believe that Tzimtzum is literal. How can you say that God is in this world? This world is so crass. This world is so dark. This world is so coarse. It's not, it's not befitting to say that God is found. You're going to say that, that God, God is found in this world. In this lowest of all worlds, you can say it's like a king from his palace is watching. So God is divine providence; He's watching over everything. But to say that God Himself, the King Himself, is found in this coarse, crass, dark place—that's why they believe that God's symptom is literal. God is not here, present. His His awareness is present. His, he's watching everything, but He Himself. But if you truly understand. God is, we have simple faith that God is here. God himself is here. Here and now, actually, here and now, in this coarse, crass, dark world, material world, God is present. Even before it's refined, and before Mashiach comes, he's here. Mashiach will reveal that presence. And our mission as Jews is to reveal that presence. 
But God is here. And that's why a Jew never loses heart, even in the darkest moments. Because we're not alone. God is right here. So yes, He gave us an impossible task. Again, we don't lose heart. He gave us mission impossible. Number four. <laughs> this is the fourth exile. Okay, we already did number one, two, and three. But we don't lose heart because God is here with us. So we can do it. We'll pull it off. Don't ask us how, but we're going to do it. One way or the other, we're going to pull it off. Because God is, God is. God is reality. There is no other reality. God is right here. So therefore, we never feel alone. We never feel abandoned. We never feel disheartened. We don't lose courage. We don't lose hope. Even in the darkest moment like we are now. This is the darkest moment of exile. The most oppressive moment of exile. There's such a darkness. There's not even a, a shred of truth. Everything is so clouded and shrouded with such lies, riddled with lies and deception. And, and there's almost no redeeming factor. You know, sometimes you look at for a redeeming factor. We all experience Oslo. And those architects are still at it. And there's not one single redeeming factor. There's not one good thing about it. Usually, every lie has to have one truth. 99% lies, 1% truth. This whole movement, which spends $125 million a year attacking Israel, which is the Jew of the world, the BDS movement, is it called? Uh, boycott, uh, divest, and... And, and sanction, the DBS movement. And it's pernicious, and they're infiltrating all the universities, and the, the Protestant movement boycotted Israel in England. They don't allow a professor to, to even visit. It's very pernicious, very, very aggressive, and very li- pure lies. I, it, it's, you know, it's such a lie, and what are they, they arguing? Israel is apartheid. It's the exact opposite. The Arabs don't allow a single Jew in. <laughs> Who's the apartheid? Who's apartheid? In Gaza, they kicked out every last Jew. Because God forbid, we're not going to allow a Jew. Not only we don't allow a living Jew, they even had to dig out the graves because they would have desecrated the graves. Where's this? In Gaza. <laughs> so who's apartheid? They're apartheid. They're murderers. They throw missiles at children. And we are the evil ones. I mean... What twisted mind, what evil mind can so twist and distort reality? And it's one thing if a person is evil. The good thing about it in the past, if a person was evil, he knew he was evil. And he said he was evil. He wasn't trying to pretend that he wasn't. What's so oppressive about today's darkness is that these intellectual terrorists who defend Arab murderers and Arab suicide bombers and terrorists, they parade themselves as the paragons of virtue. We're the righteous ones, or we're going to lecture you Jews. How dare you defend yourself? Disproportionate response. <laughs> and this is, so, this is so dark. It's so evil. It's so... It's pure bluff, pure chutzpah. You're lecturing us about protecting life? You're calling us apartheid that we... And you're defending murderers. This is, this is turning everything upside down. Right is left, and the war is peace. <laughs> and, and, and good is evil, and evil is good. And you're parading yourself, you're the paragons of virtue. This is the moral position. 
to be anti-Israel and to be pro-Palestinian. That's the moral position. To divest and to boycott. This, this, is, this is such darkness. This is such so evil. It's 100% evil. It's not even, there's not even one point of truth there. The Arab terrorists make the worst Jew in the world look like a saint in comparison. What would happen if all the Arab armies in the world took a vacation? Not a single Jew would do anything. And the Arabs would sleep like babies at night. What would happen if, God forbid, the Israeli army took a day's vacation? There would be no Israel. So who's the, who are the good guys and who are the bad guys? Who's evil and who's good? And for someone to twist that around and to make the Jew feel guilty there's not one iota of truth here. So this darkness is so oppressive. It's never been more oppressive. And what's even sadder and more tragic is many Jews have been victims. Many Jews have bought into this narrative of the enemy. Our own worst enemies. We met the enemy and it's us. Israel's worst enemies are Jews. Who, who dedicated their lives to denigrate, humiliate, use every opportunity to harm the Jewish people. But in the name of righteousness, this is a moral crusade. We're standing up for justice. We're standing up for the underdog. So this is, this is such darkness. It's never been, we've never experienced such darkness. Yes, we've had tremendous darkness, the Holocaust. But then things were clear. You knew right from wrong. It was very clear. It was so simple, you couldn't delude yourself. Who were the good guys and who were the bad guys? But today, with this lies and confusion and political correctness and this twisting of reality, turning reality upside down and painting the Jew as the bad guys and painting these murderers and lowlifes, Nazis, as Arab Nazis, oh, they're the good guys. They're the heroes, and we're going to defend them. This is so pernicious. This is so evil. It's undescribable. It's so painful. And it's intolerable. You're an intellectual terrorist? Call yourself one. At least know that you're a lowlife. Know that you don't have a shred of morality. You wouldn't even know what morality looks like if it steered you in the face. You don't know what truth is. You believe there is no such thing as truth. You can't think straight. Your mind is upside down. You're so open-minded, your brains fell out. So there's nobody home. And there's not a shred of soul, not a shred of genuineness, not a shred of humility to you. So then we, we can call a snake a snake. But don't parade yourself and don't, don't wrap yourself up as a paragon of virtue. And we're going to moralize and lecture the Jews. How dare you defend yourself? This proportionate response. It's so mind-boggling. It's so intolerable. Your arrogance is what's intolerable. It's one thing, you know, if you were up front. But you're so dishonest, and there's not even a shred of, of intellectual integrity, intellectual honesty. And yet you're so arrogant. What are you arrogant about? It's pure bluff, pure chutzpah, pure bluster. And the only way to fight chutzpah is fire with fire. To call a spade a spade. That there's not one iota of truth. There's nothing to apologize. The Jewish people will remain strong and will say openly, we're not going to give one inch of the land of Israel to our enemies.
and we're not going to endanger one single life, and we're not going to apologize for defending life. We're proud of it. We're proud. We're people who love life, and we're proud of it, and we're fanatical about defending life, and we're going to teach you a lesson of what it means to, to defend life and to defend what's right. So this is, even in this darkness, nevertheless, Hashem is present. Hashem's essence is present. There's no hiding, there's no concealing. And this is what gives us the strength to be able to overcome the last moments of darkness, which are just too much. It's just unbearable. It's just a little too much. You know, it's very hard to deal with these lies, you know, this ocean of lies. It's just, because you're not dealing with a person that has a shred of integrity. You're dealing with a media that's completely compromised. There's nobody to talk to. There's nobody home. You're going to talk logic. You're going to talk truth. You're going to talk facts. You're going to appeal to morality. It's so dark. There's nobody home. There's nobody to talk to. All there is is arrogance. All there is. Pure, absolute arrogance. There's nothing there. So it's very hard for the Jew to bear this type of, of, of darkness. We never, we never face such a darkness. Everything today is upside down. Society has dedicated itself to, the, to attack the family, destroy the family, and is doing a great job at it. They call, in darkness, they call enlightenment. Advanced? It's not advanced. Society hasn't advanced. Society has regressed thousands of years. Not advanced. It's so primitive. It's so, it's so pagan. It's so, but it's one thing, if you'll be honest about it. But to call it progress. So these, these lies are very hard to take. And nevertheless... He says, Hashem is found even in the lowest level. Even a time like today, when we reach the limit below with no limits, the lowest level you can imagine, which is today, there's never been a lower level than we are today. You can, we can say that fully and unfortunately, truthfully. Let's be honest about our situation. And nevertheless, there is no symptom. Hashem is found, Hashem is here. Hashem's essence. There's no difference. Just like Hashem was there when the, when the Jews were in the highest level. And they stood at Mount Sinai. When they left Egypt. In the temple. With the prophets. Hashem, when they crossed the Jordan with Joshua. When Joshua stopped the sun. Hashem is here. His essence is here. It's actual. It's immediate. It's real. Right here, right now, in every one of us without any exception. And this is what gives us that strength. This is the faith that gives us the strength in the last seconds of exile, the most unbearable seconds of exile. Not only not to lose hope, but to carry on the faith and carry on with strength, carry on our Yiddishkeit and know knowingly at any moment Hashem's essence will be revealed for all to see when the light switch will go on and then we won't have to deal anymore with all this nonsense and all these Arab Nazis will be put out of business and all those who have dedicated their careers to defend the Arab Nazis those intellectual terrorists and those newspapers who are going bankrupt one by one anyway and they deserve to go bankrupt because they're, they're, they're rags they've all become rags and pure garbage there's no news, there's no objectivity, there's no facts. It's all, everything is tainted, everything is twisted, everything is agendas. They wouldn't know what truth looks like even if it steered them in the face. And that's the real reason they're going bankrupt. They don't even realize why they're going bankrupt. 
because people have abandoned them. Because why, why waste all that money in buying, in buying a rag? One magazine after the other, one newspaper after the other, cutting staff because they are going bankrupt. Because that's the real reason. And um, Mashiach will come. We won't have to... Then we'll be able to read the Algemeen, <laughs> get the real news. Um, but it'll be a world of truth, a world of reality. Up will be up, and down will be down, and the truth will be truth. And um, now is Yud Shvat. This week is uh, Monday, Sunday night is Yud Shvat. That's why we're having this grand dinner. Shabbaton, the Kohl rabbis, and uh, you know, the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe was the antidote, the antidote to Hitler and Stalin. He says, God created the world in an equal balance. And such evil that the world has never seen before. Stalin, who murdered more Russians than, than even Hitler did, 20 million Russians, all in the name of communism, in the name of ideology. And um, Hitler plunged the world into such murder and mayhem. A hundred million people lost their lives because of it. And such evil, such absolute, boundless, infinite evil, the world has never seen before. The antidote to that had to be a Jew so holy. You can get an understanding of how holy the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe was. His holiness knew no limits, had no bounds. And he was the antidote to Hitler and Stalin. And the greatest challenge that he had was the last challenge that he had when he came to America in 1940. Even the streets in America were not kosher. And the test of wealth is much more difficult than the test of oppression. Because it's so much easier to assimilate. It's one thing to keep your fires going when you're challenged. You know, your back is up against the wall. It brings out, sometimes it brings out the best within you. You know, your challenge, okay. You live up, you, you live up to the challenge. Brings out hidden strengths. But this lulls you to sleep. Wealth, comfort, lulls you to sleep. How do you keep your fire going in America? It's so easy just to assimilate and get so caught up and distracted, so many distractions. And you're just caught up with your career, with making money, you're climbing Mount Everest of materialism and you forget. You forget your soul, you forget your identity, you forget your core, your essence, your Jewishness. How do you maintain that fire, that burning bush, that flame, alive, even in this milieu and this surrounding? This is the toughest challenge. And the previous Rebbe went from challenge to challenge. First was Stalinism, then Hitlerism, and then... Assimilationism, Western assimilationism. And he came through all three with flying colors. All three. Each challenge alone would be enough to give a death sentence to the Jewish people. It was like 3,800 years of Jewish life in one blow. Stalin was all over. All over. Jewish life shut down overnight. It was, it was as if it never happened. That's it. Hitler. One blow. 3,800 years almost uprooted the tree at its roots, taking the best of the Jewish people, the holiest, the best. And then American assimilationism, what was left, 
It was like an ocean of engulfing us with assimilationism, comfort, lulling us into comfort. People were so busy trying to make it here in America and tried to make it and be successful and they tossed their tefillin overboard and the youth were not educated in Torah, mitzvot, and it was so easy and it was enticing to just forget, just assimilate and blend in and become an American and 3,800 years of Jewish history. Cut out. That's it. Assimilated, intermarried, all over. And comes this fire, this torch. And you can see what a torch he was from the fact that he had to overcome three such challenges. Each one of them alone would be a knockout blow to the Jewish people. And he successfully overcame all three. Preserved Jewish life in Russia. Miraculously survived Hitler. And came to America and established a beachhead. Preparing the ground for making this the new center for Jewish life. Not only wouldn't the Jew assimilate, but the Jew would keep the fires going. And the Rebbe, Yutzvat is the day that the previous Rebbe passed away, and immediately the Rebbe became Rebbe, took over, filled the shoes, and expanded it. Like anything that's holy goes from strength to strength. So the Rebbe filled the shoes, because this was what marked the Rebbe's whole challenge in all the years of the Rebbe, to deal with the specifically American challenge of assimilationism, of living in comfort. The Jews of our generation live in greater comfort than King Solomon could, could, could only dream of, the comforts that's available to the simplest one of us. And Jews all over the world today are basically free. There's not a single Jew today living under oppression. Almost, nine, almost every last Jew is living in freedom, which alone is miraculous, of messianic proportions. And yet, the Rebbe kept that fire going. 5,000 Chabad houses, every one of them on fire, transforming their communities like a beacon, a torch, a lighthouse, a call for every Jew living in their community to reconnect, to come home. You can be Jewish, you can be American, you can be successful, you can be, and yet you can be proud of your Jewishness. You don't have to compromise one iota of your Jewishness. On the contrary, the more, the stronger your identity, the more you strengthen your identity, the more successful you'll be as an American, the more successful you'll be in your career, and your business. And this fire, this flame, today you have 5,000 lighthouses, flames, torches, that are alive with a living, dynamic faith, a living faith in the Torah, a living faith in Hashem, a living faith in our fellow Jew, a living faith in Mashiach, a living faith in the Holy Land of Israel. And this is alive and alive and well. And this is the most impressive. It's one thing for a Jew to believe in Mashiach when you're oppressed. Of course, you need Mashiach desperately. You're impressed. It's another thing. To clamor for Mashiach when you're living so comfortably. You can eat in a Chinese restaurant one night. In the Indian kosher restaurant the next night. Moroccan in the third night. You can go to a lecture every day, 24-6. You can listen to another lecture. Everything is at your fingertips. And yet we're clamoring for Mashiach. What are we missing in our lives that we're clamoring for Mashiach? We're living more comfortable than, than our ancestors could have ever dream of. This is only because the torch, because we're on fire. Our souls are on fire. 
And when a Jew's soul is on fire, and you know that Hashem is present, and yet His presence is so hidden and so concealed, and the world is so engulfed with lies, riddled with lies and deception, and, and coarseness and crassness, and egotism, run amok, it just, you feel oppressive. It's oppressive to you. It's spiritually oppressive. We're not physically oppressed. But it's spiritually oppressive. And therefore a Jew clamors for Mashiach because he wants a real world where reality, reality and truth of Hashem is manifest, is tangible, is felt, is clear for everyone. And the world will live accordingly. The world will be a moral place, an ethical place, a spiritual place. This is the ultimate complement of the Jewish people. That for a Jew to be living in such comfort, with such distractions, and yet your soul should be so on fire that you're clamoring for Mashiach, you can't live for another moment if Mashiach doesn't come and it bothers you and it upsets you and, and you're storming heaven and earth, we want Mashiach now, and you dedicate your life to do whatever in your power to bring Mashiach by doing another mitzvah and getting another Jew to do another mitzvah. This is, this is ultimate, ultimate accomplishment, the ultimate expression of that faith of a Jew. That even in this environment, we don't lower our guard. Our soul is still on fire. Torch is powerful, more powerful than ever. And it just gets brighter and brighter. And as dark as, dark as the time we live in, it's like a twilight zone. At the same time, there's also tremendous light. Tremendous love and goodness and kindness and selflessness. And tzedakah and Torah and mitzvot. Which is astounding. There's more tzedakah today than any other time in Jewish history. Astounding. The level of kindness that we find today and goodness and Torah, mitzvot flourishing literally in every corner of the world, over 5,000 Chabad houses literally in every corner of the world. This is such a torch of light. This is such a miraculous phenomenon. This shows us that the, the, the soul is on fire and the torch is alive and well and getting more, more illuminated and ultimately and inevitably and imminently this will illuminate the whole world and the darkness will just melt away. There's no room for darkness. When there's so much light, there's simply no room for darkness. You can't have light and darkness in the same room. So we fill the world with so much light. The light of the Rebbe and the light of the previous Rebbe and the light of Tanya and the light of all the Rebbes and the light of the Baal Shem Tev, the light of Hasidus. There's no room for darkness. There won't be any room for any of this nonsense that we have to deal with. And we'll merit imminently the coming of Mashiach and we'll celebrate it together with the Rebbe and the Fidik Rebbe. And next Tuesday, you'll hear Tanya, we'll hear Tanya from the Alter Rebbe himself. This class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com.